Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Well, last week we began a series called Five Women. And, and the way that it started was we, we, we talked about the fact that like you and I, maybe in the past, maybe we've done this, we've, we've altered our resumes a little bit. You want those to look great, right? So, you know, I had, I had a season in the dish pit in a restaurant when I was a teenager, and I liked to refer to that in my resume as a dishwashing professional. It just, it sounds a little more savvy, right? And we do things like this. Or maybe you, you got fired from a particular job. You leave that one out in the resume, right? And just kind of shuffle things around and, and kind of make it look as best as possible. And what we discovered last week as we began this series was this happened um, in history. This has always been going on. And people would do this with their genealogies as they would tweak them a little bit. To, so if there was any sort of scenario in their past that was really kind of dark or sordid, you know, like... Um, they would kind of just shuffle things around so that the genealogy would look really great. But what we see in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus is that in this genealogy, uh, Matthew goes the other way. And wherever there was some sort of story you'd rather like push to the side because it doesn't sound as glamorous or glorious, Matthew inserts the names of women in these sections. It's a patrilineal line of fathers and sons. And yet here are these five women. And in every instance, that Matthew's trying to get us to think back to the story that, that existed there. And it's a story of sin. It's a story of uh, being sinned against. It's another story of scandal. And Matthew's showing us before Jesus even arrives the need of redemption, the need of hope. And so we're zeroing in on all five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus this Advent season, the four Sundays of Advent and then Christmas Eve. And we last week looked at um, a woman named Tamar. And this week we're going to look at a woman named Rahab. So if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Joshua chapter 2. Let me read. Uh, it'll be in the... Uh, on the screen as well. I'll start in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 2. It's near the beginning of the Bible. It's the sixth book of the Bible. And in Joshua 2, it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies. Unfortunate place. They're on their way out of there. And uh, sent them from there saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Let me just pause there for a minute and just get you up to speed where we are in the story of God. Um, God has freed his people from bondage to slavery in Egypt and sent them out across the Red Sea into the wilderness. And they are going to overtake, they're going to take over the promised land. They're going to enter it. And so they're in this time of... um, waiting and they get into the wilderness. God has seen them through and um, Moses sends 12 spies, 12 spies to scope out the land of promise. Um, and, and they go and they do that and they come back and 10 of the 12 um, say, we need to stop. Uh, it's very, very bad, right? The, the, the cities are fortified. Their men are huge, 
Like, we shouldn't do this. And they had such doubt and disbelief. And then all the people begin to grumble and murmur and say, like, let's not do that. Let's not go there. And they begin to doubt the God who parted the Red Sea and brought them through, who, who led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, who fed the manna from heaven. And they know all this and have experienced all this. And they, they get to the point where they are to enter this promised land. They say, we can't do it. They're too big. The cities are too hard to overthrow. So that's all happened. That generation die out in the wilderness, and the next generation now are ready to enter the promised land. Moses has passed away, and now the mantle of leadership has been passed on to Joshua. So Joshua, right here we see it, Joshua chapter 2 now, sends out two spies. It's interesting. He had sent out 12. Ten of them came back with negative reports, You know who the two positive reports were from? Caleb and Joshua. And now Joshua sends two spies to the promised land. Let's let's have a do-over. And he says, I'm going to send two. I don't know if it's because there were only two that gave faithful reports the last time or what, but in this instance, it's not the 12. No, it's going to be two. And so he sends two spies, particularly to Jericho, and they wind up at the house of a prostitute named Rahab. We'll pick up the story, chapter 2, verse 3. Then the king of Jericho sent Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman, this is Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So we, we, we are introduced to Rahab, who houses these men, you know, gets, sends them up to the roof, covers them in the flax up, up in the roof, covers them, and then tells the king's men, oh, they just left. I didn't know who they were, and they just left. They went out of the city. If you go after them quick, if you leave here now and go there, you might catch up to them. So she says all of that, and, um, and really, she's got them hidden out on the roof of her place. Now, the point of this story, as you will see, isn't that Rahab was a good liar. Or, here's the moral of the story, lie when it's appropriate. God bless you, have a great week. Like, it's it's not the point of the story, never was. Like, we see where we pick it up where it talks about Rahab in Hebrews and the book of James. What's said about Rahab is nothing about her lying, but it's about her faith in God. So, what this story is saying is, yes, she lied, much like the Hebrew midwives in Exodus where Pharaoh um, told her to kill the firstborn Israelite males because the population was getting too big and they were getting too strong, so kill them, and the midwives didn't because they weren't going to abort these newborn babies. They weren't going to do it. So, Pharaoh finally realizes, wait a minute, they're not doing what I told them, brings them back, and they say, you know, the thing about the Israelite women is they're, when they, get, they, 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 they give birth so quickly. They're so strong, and they give birth so quick. We can't get there in time. So they lied. So we see that. We see this in history with women like Corey Ten Boom and Anne Frank, who housed Jews during World War II, and there's this issue of the safety in the midst of wickedness housing people who would otherwise lose their lives. 
So that would make a great ethics class discussion, but that's not really the point this morning because the focus of the text is one of the faith of Rahab. So let's pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came to the, them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, here's her declaration of faith, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Here's the first thing that we can glean from the story of Rahab. The story of Rahab teaches us first that we enter the promised land through faith alone. We see this young woman here who professes a faith in God that sounds much like the beginning of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father of Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And really, the Apostles' Creed can't really go on much further than that because Jesus hasn't come yet. So what they know of God, she has heard and she believes. She is professing faith. She is um, reciting the first part of the, Lord, of, of the Apostles' Creed, essentially. She says in verse 11, The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And these spies go on to give her some further instructions. And in verse 21, she says, According to your words, so be it. Which is precisely the response that Mary has to the angel Gabriel that comes and visits her about this majestic thing that's about to happen. And she says, As you have said, may it be. This is a profession of a faith of a godly woman. And, uh, and so we see that, we, that she will, in the future, as the story unfolds, enter the promised land through faith alone. Here's what's so fascinating about Rahab, the prostitute, is she had greater faith than most of the Israelites did. The Israelites who witnessed the plagues against Egypt in Egypt, the Israelites who saw the Red Sea part and who walked through it. The Israelites who were led by pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, God's very presence guiding them, who were fed manna from heaven and water from a rock and every need met and were told that the, like, they saw it all and they heard it all, what happened on the mount and what God spoke to them. All of this was their experience that they had seen and they had heard and yet they began to be the kinds of people that did didn't trust God and lacked faith. And yet Rahab comes along and had not seen, but had only heard some of that, some of what God had done. And she believed. She had faith. It's reminiscent of Jesus with the, his disciple Thomas, who just will not believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. I've got to see him for myself. I've got to touch where the nails went through his hands. I have to see him to believe it. And Jesus says, have you believed, this is in John 20, have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's what Rahab did. I've heard about the parting of the Red Sea and what you did to those kings. Your God is God in heaven and earth. 
I believe that. And the same is true for you and I. If we haven't seen the resurrected Christ, but perhaps many of you have heard the gospel. We talk about it a lot, the good news of Jesus, that he came to save sinners, that he came and died in our place. And when we hear it, we are called to be like Rahab. I've heard and I believe in that God, the God uh, this is the God that I put my trust in. It is her faith alone that saves her and will help her enter this promised land with the Israelites. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, Rahab says, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now look, we already said the story of Rahab teaches us that we enter the promised land through faith alone. Now this story indicates to us that the story of Rahab teaches us that faith that saves is never alone. I really get this from a, a, a famous phrase that Martin Luther is quoted as saying, which is, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So truly, Rahab is saved by her faith. It's not by anything she's done. She hasn't earned anything. It's not by her merits. It's simply trusting in, believing in the God, that God is who he says he is and putting her faith in him. That's how she's saved. But the kind of faith that places faith in the hands of God who declares these things is the kind of faith that works itself out in action. Authentic faith is always proved through um, the way that we live. Let me illustrate this. We spent some time this fall talking about marriage. We did some sermons on marriage, and then we went at a marriage retreat and heard more talks on marriage. And so it just reminded Emily and I about our relationship and the way that we both kind of receive and express love to, to each other. And um, the way that I kind of receive love is through words of affirmation, right? So if she just were to like look at me and say, man, I love you so much, I would be like, that is that is great. Like, that's the great, that's all you need to do. That's all you need to, just tell me. It's sad. It's really sad. Tell me more. Ooh, tell me more things. Like, <laughs> uh, 
And, and so what, what we discovered again in the marriage series was that what we tend to do as spouses is we tend to want to express love in the way that we receive it, right? So I will often, you know, put the kids to bed, Emily and I are sitting together, and I'll just look at her and say, I love you so much. I love this, and I love this. And she'll just kind of like look over at me like, And I'm usually like, do you want to turn? Do you want to say something? Uh, but really, she's, she's somewhat thinking like, okay, you're telling me all this, but prove it. <laughs> because her, the way that she uh, feels love expressed is through gift giving, which is just really economically, uh, you know, unhelpful, right? That's a ch- <laughs> I guess challenging, like gift giving really... And what I've discovered, though, is it isn't so much that she likes to have lots of stuff. Like, it's not the point. The way that love is expressed through gift-giving for her is that I thought of her at some point in the day. It gets worse. Not only that, that I didn't even think of, not, not only did I think about her, but I remember back to her mentioning something, you know, months or weeks ago of this thing that would be really special, that I would have tucked that away for a rainy day. So not only have I thought of her in the day, but I've, re- I've had the memory of an elephant, I guess, and, <laughs> and I remember this thing that she would really love, and I go and get it for her. And then I come home and I present it to her, and she'll go, oh, Right? Because it's so special, because I've just expressed love in the ways that she receives it. Well, that's something of the way that, that, that faith in the Christian life works. Yeah, 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 we can profess it. We can profess it all, all we want. And in a sense, the, it's, it's the faith professed that saves us, yes. But genuine faith that professes it to Jesus also begins to work itself out in actions, even actions that are costly, actions that shape our lives. And we begin to, our lives look different because we've encountered Jesus in such an authentic way in faith that we actually, our actions change, our expressions change, our talk changes. We make costly decisions like, that, that we wouldn't have otherwise. Like, life has action. And that's what we see happening in this text. Rahab risked everything to get in on the promise of God. So she professes it in verse 11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she says it. I believe in your God, that he is the God of the heavens, God over all the earth. And then instantly she hid the spies. She diverted the king's men. She helped them escape. She tied the scarlet cord. She did all these things. Her faith that she professed was instantly worked out in a change of lifestyle, in costly things. See, her faith produced works, good works. James chapter 2 says this about Rahab. Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, the word justified here doesn't mean that the stuff she did saved her. It means that what she did proved genuine faith and salvation. And so the natural question for you and I is, is my faith a merely professed faith, a Sunday morning faith, or is it a faith that gets worked out when I go from here? I was talking to someone in our church recently who is starting to see on the horizon that they might lose their license for the the profession they have in our city because their ethics, their, their... What would go against their conscience is beginning to be asked of them in their job. And they will hit a point where it's not simply faith professed, 
but will I follow this through where it may cost me? Will I do it? Is my faith that true, that real? And what we see in Rahab is a woman who both said it and then put her life on the line. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Live a cross-focused, cross-shaped life that you bring that into everything, into your work. It may cost you business. It may cost you your license. It may cost you in relationships. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're wanting to date. And this person that checks, text, ticks off a lot of boxes for you doesn't have that box that you can tick that they share a Christian faith. And yet for you, your Christian faith is the very foundation and essence of who you are. And so now your faith is not only one professed, but now it's like, will I see it through? Will I say no to somebody who ticks a lot of boxes for me and not date them because I know that having Jesus in common is of uttermost importance and things will not go well if those aren't met? Right? We begin to live generous lives. We begin to lay our lives down. We begin to care for others in costly ways. See, faith in Jesus professed, authentic faith always begins to work itself out in a change of actions, and will you let your faith cost? Rahab has shown us again the kind of genuine faith that saves is the kind of faith that's never alone in profession but leads to a changed lifestyle as well. Now, I'm talking about risk. I'm talking about cost, but I want to hear you something. I want to remind you of something here on the other side, which is this. That when you live that costly Christian life that may cost you friends, that may cost you work, that may cost you business, that may cost you all kinds of things, here, when your faith is in the hands of the sovereign, everlasting Father, you are in the safest possible place. Right? So sure, your faith might cost you, but listen, God has got you, and He will see you through And to live for him, costly as it may be, is worth it. And he will see you through. Thirdly, the story of Rahab teaches us that Jesus takes outsiders and brings them in. This is really why all of these women are listed in this patrilineal father and son um, listing in, in, in Matthew 1. This is the great theme of this series, that Jesus takes outsiders and brings them in. No one's more of an outsider than Rahab. We already see she's a liar. (laughs) We've been told she's a prostitute. She's a Gentile. She was an outsider of people of faith. Not only that, in her own context, she would have been the bottom of the barrel. Um, Look, prostitution, like, it's, it's never a chosen. You just don't choose that line of work. She was likely sold to pay a debt that she couldn't have paid otherwise or her family couldn't pay otherwise. She's trapped in this scenario. And so um, something really profound happens here for Rahab the outsider, Rahab the forgotten one, Rahab the nobody, is that these men come along and approach her and stay in her house and they've got to be like no other men she's come across in her life. Why would men enter her house? And yet here, in verse 14, when these Israelite men who love God show up, she says, please, spare me and my family. And you know how how they respond in verse 14? 
our life for yours, even to death. For the first time likely in her life, she has come across men who treat her like a sister, not an object. Listen, we'll die for you. So look, the men of Jericho are these men who are melting in fear. The king and his men have been for 40 years after they've heard about the Israelites coming, have been looking at the horizon for the bringers of destruction to come. Not Rahab. Rahab's heard the same stories, and she's been looking at the horizon every day for the bringers of deliverance. And they've come. The maker of heaven and earth shows up to Rahab the prostitute's house because he wants to save her. Reminds me of Jesus when he, it said that he had to go through Samaria on his way to Galilee or from Galilee. I don't remember. John chapter 4. But the interesting thing is that really geographically he didn't have to go. He didn't have to go to Samaria. He could have gone around. But the reason that Jesus had to go to Samaria is because he had to meet a woman at a well there to offer living water. Joshua is a man who had a lot of faith and he believed that God was going to give them the promised land. Yet he sent two spies and we've got to believe that part of the reason they were sent, maybe they didn't even know why, but God knew is these men were sent because they were going to meet a woman who was a prostitute, who was forgotten and who was the bottom of the barrel in Jericho, and God was going to save her that day. Jesus takes outsiders and brings them in. So if we were, if we were to pan out a little bit here and look at the big redemptive story of God, even beyond the story of Rahab, Rahab and her family are a foretaste of the church to come. This includes you and me. Rahab and her family are a foretaste of the promises of God about tribes and tongues and nations coming to God. And here's the thing about Rahab. She is the first Gentile convert recorded in the Bible. She's the first. It talks about a multitude of people going with the Israelites out of Egypt, but it's very vague. There's people there. But when, this, when the Bible zooms in at a Gentile coming to faith, Rahab's the first Gentile convert recorded in the Bible. I just want to say it again. Jesus takes outsiders and brings them in. She's the most unlikely person. She's a nobody. She's a forgotten person. She's trampled on by men. And God goes and pursues her. And then he doesn't only bring her into the family of God as some like second-class citizen, or you can come along with us, but you're not really a part of us. She ends up marrying a man named Salmon, and they have a son named Boaz, and we'll hear the story of Boaz and Ruth next week. This is the thing about Rahab. She is so brought into the family of God that she becomes the great-great-grandmother of a guy by the name of King David. And you know who's going to come from the line of King David? Jesus is going to come from the line of King Dahab. Uh, King who? King David. Um, and uh, just messing up my history. And um, in other words, Rahab is a mother of Jesus. Jesus takes outsiders and brings them so in. Do you feel beyond... God's rescue? Feel like you've done too much wrong? Feel like you cannot be accepted by God? Rahab assures us that you can. 
People in your lives you just, you've written off, that they can't be saved. Rahab reminds us that they can. E. Stanley Jones put it this way, three words were constantly upon Jesus' lips, the least, the last, and the lost. Feel like an outsider? You know what Jesus loved to talk about? You know who Jesus loved to minister to? You know who Jesus liked to party with? The least, the last, the lost. He loves you. He loves you. Not only that, in another way, Jesus um, brings the outsider in. In Joshua 2, in Joshua 6, in Hebrews 11, in James chapter 2, every single time it talks about Rahab, it says, Rahab the prostitute. It's kind of like, ah, like, like that's, that's not fair. Like we don't talk about Bill the glutton. It's like, hey, is Bill the glutton coming over? Right? We, just, we don't talk, is Barb the gossip coming? Maybe we do refer to Barb as the, Barb the gossip. I don't know. But like, do we, like, right, like Brian the coveter, like it's, it seems so like rude or mean or hurtful. Like does this, this tagline of the prostitute, like does it need to really, like do you have to bring that up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? Like, come on. It's not meant to be an insult to her though. It's, it, it's meant so that people like you and me, sinners, like you and me, can see the display of the redeeming work and glory of God. Rahab the prostitute became a mother of Jesus. The outsider was brought in. The lost was saved, and he can do it for you. The gospel is good news to gossips and gluttons and murderers and greedy people and prostitutes. It was good news for Rahab, and it's good news for us. Joshua 2.24, they departed, this is the spies, and went into the hills. They did precisely what Rahab instructed them to do, and they remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. I'm going to jump to chapter 26, uh, sorry, Joshua chapter 6, and we'll pick it up in verse 17, and we'll see um, what transpires. And the city, that's uh, Jericho, and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she, she hid the messengers whom he sent. Verse 25, but Rahab the prostitute, after they brought destruction to the, the city, Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So the story of Jericho, or sorry, the story of Rahab also teaches us that outside of faith in Jesus, we stand in the path of God's judgment. So we talk about the good news, we talk about gospel a lot, but every once in a while we need to reflect, what's the bad news? If this is good news, what's the bad news? And this story reminds us of the bad news, that, that destruction was coming to the Canaanites, starting with Jericho here in this scene. And destruction would come to all but Rahab and her household. Because outside of faith in Jesus, we too stand in the path of God's judgment. So let me just paint the picture for a couple of minutes here of what went down. 
It starts way back in Genesis 15 where the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. Verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You need to hear that line. The reason God is saying to Abraham that this people are going... Israelites are actually going to go to Egypt for 400 years and are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years is ultimately because the time for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They will be brought to destruction. They will face judgment, but not yet. And so because of this scenario, God sends, and he uses it, but God sends his people into slavery for four centuries. And he makes them wander in the wilderness for 40 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But where we pick up the story in Joshua, their iniquity is complete. So until, when we look at Genesis 15, until it was right to invade, God's people must wait even if it costs them centuries of hardship. So that's gone on. And now the time has come where Rahab says in verse 10, we heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. If you were to read of, uh, uh, all of Joshua and read about the Israelites going in and taking the promised land, you will hear that phrase, devoted to destruction, over and over again. There's a Hebrew word for that, harem. And it's really about the Israelites being agents of God's wrath. It was a special revelation specific to them. Can't say that it'll ever happen again, but what's happened in this scenario is that God is using the Israelites to bring judgment upon people that were ready to face judgment in his eyes, and he uses them to do it. He did it with the flood. He did it here into the promised land. He does it when every person passes away. They face the judgment of God, and when Christ returns again, all people will be judged. See, it's coming And so we see that happening here in the story. We cannot miss it. But this idea of judgment and hell is wildly unpopular in our culture. Wildly unpopular. And it's exceedingly biblical. We see the notion of hell as unfair. And this stems from our underlying beliefs of our culture. There are those in other parts of the world, places like China and Turkey, for example, those who believe in God and even those who don't believe in God but are from other parts of the world, where they will say, if God exists, God certainly would have a right to judge people as he sees fit. You can go across the world to people who believe in God and people who don't believe in God in other cultures and say, well, yeah, sure, if God exists, he has the right to judge people. He has the right to do with him what we will, what he will. And so what we need to recognize is that our doubts about hell or oftentimes based on a typically Caucasian, Western, democratic, individualistic mindset that most other people in the world don't share nor have shared through the centuries. And therefore, to insist that the universe be run like a Western democracy is actually a very ethnocentric point of view, right? We want to be very appealing and we want to be very agreeable with other people and what they think, except when it comes to God and his wrath, he had better operate in the ways that we deem appropriate, But who are we to say that? Ultimately, the Bible tells us that outside of faith, we stand in the path of God's judgment. But this isn't just simply some sort of um, cultural lens and worldview piece. Ultimately, our issue with the judgment of God has more to do with our disgust over God's wrath over and above any sort of disgust over our sin. 
Mike McKinley, in talking about God pouring out his wrath in the Old Testament, says, The Lord explains his wrath by pointing to the persistent idolatry and disobedience of the people. He goes on to say, sin is serious, and its consequences are terrible. If we're repulsed by the Lord's anger, it's because we're not sufficiently repulsed by sin. And if you and I were to be truly honest, many of us would say, yeah, I'm disgusted with the wrath of God that I read about in my Bible. Uh, Not so disgusted with my sin. It's justified. My sin is small. God's wrath is, right, the focus, and it's wrong. It says in Hebrews 11.31, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies, because she had faith that produced action. And really, if we look at this in terms of opportunity that, that, that... Jericho could have had, like Rahab, everyone else in Jericho, and Canaanite for that, and Canaan for that matter, could have been rescued as well. The rest of the Canaanites were just as aware of the signs and wonders of God and could have responded the way Rahab had, but they didn't. They froze in fear of the Israelites and shuddered, but they didn't respond the way Rahab did, which was that her fear of the Lord led her to turn to him in faith. And the Bible calls us over and over and over again to do precisely the same thing. Turn to me and live. Put your faith in me and live. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we will enter the new land of promise, the land of promise to come for all eternity, a new garden city, a land full of promise that we will spend in eternity with Jesus. The only way there is through the cross of Christ. Lastly, finally, the story of Rahab teaches us that Jesus is the crimson cord that God holds out to us. Let me explain that. The scarlet cord in the window that she was instructed to hang from the window so that the soldiers could identify her place that could be spared, her family's lives that could be spared, their house that could be passed over, was to be identified with a scarlet cord or a crimson cord. And it has been said that there is a scarlet thread that runs throughout the Bible. And it is the binding that holds the pages of Scripture together. Can I tell you about this scarlet cord as we close? That is the binding that's woven through the entire Bible, the scarlet cord. See, there's a tradition in the church going all the way back to Clement of Rome in the first century and, and even possibly earlier than him that the scarlet cord represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And when Adam and Eve had sinned before God, they recognized their nakedness, they were ashamed and they hid. God spilt blood and gave them the skins of animals to cover up. Abel um, sacrificed animals as an, off, as an offering that was acceptable to God. Abraham was instructed to sacrifice his son, but before he could, a ram was provided in the thicket and the ram's blood was able to be shed instead of his son's. The scarlet cord woven again in and through, reminiscent of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts during the exodus, that every hole marked with blood was spared that night from death. 
And then the institution from that point on of the Passover lamb and its bloodshed, the sacrificial system and thousands of years of sacrifices performed at the tabernacle and temple. We see this woven through the scriptures and we should see this scarlet cord continuing, this thread to be continued to be woven through the scriptures to the point where John the Baptist sees Jesus the Messiah coming. And what does he declare? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus climbs up on a cross and his blood is poured out there. And this scarlet thread works its way through all of the scriptures to the point of the cross and no further. For at the cross, Jesus was able to declare, it is finished. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We see the shedding of blood throughout the Scriptures to the point of Jesus Christ where an acceptable sacrifice was made where no more sacrifices are necessary for it was the once for all sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God for all who would believe in Him. This crimson cord this thread of redemption that is woven throughout the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Christ. Jesus is the crimson cord that God holds out to us. So many of you in this room, as we transition to a time of communion, many of you have, in your lives, reached out in faith and grabbed hold of the crimson cord that is Jesus that God has made a way for you. Many of you have. And this morning as we take communion, this will be a reminder. Jesus calls us to remember his body broken and bloodshed on the cross by taking the communion meal over and over as the body of Christ. We're to continue to do this. And so may it be reminiscent. May all of those thoughts of giving your life to Jesus, of walking with Jesus, gratitude for the gospel, flood into your hearts as you grab afresh that crimson cord that God holds out to you. For some of you in the room this morning, I know this to be true. You have never reached out in faith and grabbed hold of the crimson cord that God has availed to you, believed in faith in Jesus Christ. But I assure you, he held it out for Rahab and he spared her. He holds it out to you for he wants you to know him. He wants to cover you, make you clean. So I'm going to invite the band to come on up. We're going to have communion servers come on up as well, and we're going to spend some time in response. We'll sing. Over the course of a song, you can come up for gluten-free bread (laughs) and um, symbolizing this body broken and take a thimble of juice, a symbol of his blood shed for us, and receive that. Um, While you're up, if you'd like to receive prayer, if you'd like to do that, we'll have people, prayer team members in different parts of the room, up on the balcony, off to the sides here. They'd love to pray with you this morning about anything on your heart. So while you're up, feel free to be ministered to that way. Let me just close in a word of prayer, and then we will respond. Lord Jesus, thank you for this crimson cord held out to us that we, we might receive it in faith. Thank you for all that it means. You died a sacrificial death so that we could live. You love us so fully. You pursue us so beautifully. You cover us so completely, Lord. You take the outsider and bring them in. Would you do that in every one of our hearts this morning? We praise you for your grace. Lord, for those of us who confess you as our Savior and our Lord this morning, we come forward over the course of this song 
and respond with deep gratitude and thanks. For those of us exploring and seeking, Lord, we sit where we are, we pray, we seek you, we reflect. Lord, I pray you'd stir in those hearts as well. Lord, where we are um, not right with a brother or sister in Christ, if there's unforgiveness, if there is a deep issue that we have not dealt with, Lord, I pray that we would also just be able to sit where we are and pray and reflect on that, leave from here, ask for forgiveness, make a major wrong right, and then come back next month celebrating this meal with the family. Lord, make us faithful. Most of all, we say thank you for coming to save us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.